But let's read together, uh, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. In a time where kings and rulers were ruthlessly vying for dominance, and the common man was oppressed by the thumb of Rome, a disunified Israel held on to hope for their promised Messiah to rescue them. However, no one knew what to expect. Some expected a warrior who would crush his enemies with the sword. Some expected a king who would establish a government over all. Who came? No one expected. Born a carpenter's son, this man was humble yet authoritative, unpredictable yet reliable compassionate yet mild. The Messiah's entrance was not a warrior campaign which forced submission. It was an invasion beginning in the hearts and the lives of those he encountered. This is the story of the true Messiah emerging amidst the pretenders. This is the story of Jesus turning the world on its head. This is the story of the King and his kingdom. I've got a confession to make. When I was a kid, I was a goody two-shoes. I mean, look at me. You know, I, I mean, I just, I grew up, when I was a little kid, you know, I grew up in a Christian family, and when I was a little kid, I went to elementary school at a public school, but it was, 
in the Bible Belt, rural school, it might as well have been a Christian school. And then uh, when I, we moved out of the Bible Belt to New Mexico, and my parents put me in a Christian school there. And uh, so for about six years, I was there. Well, then when I became a junior in high school, I went to a public high school. It was uh, huge, you know, I don't remember, 2,000, 2,500 students, something like that. Uh, lots of gangsters, lots of gangster wannabes, lots of, uh, you know, it was New Mexico, so a lot of them uh, spoke Spanish, but uh, they, all, they knew all the American cuss words, too. And then you've got, you know, all the, all the jocks and the, you know, just the whole crew. You know how it is in high school, in the big public high school. A lot of you, some of you went to a big public high school, like uh, West Monroe High over here is pretty big. Others of you may have been in a smaller one and in a different community. But, you know, that experience of, of being in that school uh, awakened me to just how much of a, a little goody two-shoes that I was because, I mean, just walking from class to class, one trip down the hall, I heard more cuss words than I heard in six years at the Christian school, you know, just <laughs> one trip down the hall. And I remember I used to think, man, I hear this language all the time. What if a cuss word slips out? Just because I hear it all the time. Now, is that not a goody two-shoe thing to think? I mean, for crying out loud, you know, I'm worried about accidentally saying something one time, watch out. Um, you know, I just, that's how I was wired. And uh, I'm not saying that to, to make you think that I was perfect or am perfect or had it all together. You know, I had my own issues that I dealt with, but I was very much rule-minded, you know. And I had all these rules I had to follow. And, and uh, honestly, probably I was just as concerned or more concerned about was everyone else following the rules as I was about was I following the rules and I think that's kind of uh, I think a lot of us could probably identify with that because I think for a lot of us where we think it's all about the rules it is easy to get to a place isn't it where we where we're more concerned with everyone else following the rules than we are about checking how much we're really following all the rules The thing is, uh, I think that all of us, whether we call ourselves a a goody two-shoe or not, we we wrestle with the whole rule thing. Because either either you say, hey, I'm definitely not a goody two-shoes, and I'm not sure that I can even fit into this whole church thing because there's so many rules, and I don't even know where to start, um, you know, or... Or you've been trying to live like this, but you never quite feel like you're measuring up, and you never feel like you're going to be able to hit all the rules, and, and aren't there like a million of them anyways, and, and what in the world? How, who, who, can, who can do that? You know, who can live up to the standard? How do we know when we're being good enough, and, and all that? I want to suggest to you today that the kingdom that Jesus ushered in was not a kingdom about rules. The kingdom that he ushered in was very different from the world in which he lived at the time, which was all about rules. The Jewish people, by the time Jesus was there, had hundreds of little rules and big rules and everything in between. They argued and discussed over which were the greatest rules and which were the least rules. And should the greatest rules be given more attention and the least rules not? Or should we just have to follow all of them? And it was all about the rules. A lot of groups in that day, like the Pharisees, felt like if, if the Jewish people followed all the rules and then some rules just right, 
then God would see fit to come and reign again and, and put Israel back on its feet and the kingdom would be restored. But Jesus comes with just one rule and really simplifies things. Instead of trying to jump through all these different hoops of are you good enough, Jesus gives one principle one guideline, one question that if we ask it in each situation that we come up against in life, then by the help of His Spirit, it guides us in the right direction. And I'm just going to hold you in suspense on that for a little while. Let you guess which rule you think it is or what you think it's about. The rule that it is, though, is not, uh, it's, I said it's simpler. That doesn't mean it's easier. It's just simpler. A lot simpler than trying to keep up with hundreds of rules and making sure you don't get a little bit off. And uh, Well, you, you know how it is with rules. There's gray areas and then there's the black and the white. And, you know, am I really breaking that rule or not? And, and this just clears all that up a lot. We have been talking about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about how uh, the kingdom, unfortunately, you know, in a lot of cases is ignored, maybe because we're not that comfortable with the concept of kings and kingdoms in our day and time. But king and kingdom is something that we find a theme running throughout Scripture. And we saw that from the start of this series. Uh, on Easter Sunday, we talked about how the king came to power, how he took his throne. And then last week, we started diving into what does this kingdom look like? What does a kingdom mindset look like. And we talked last week about how his kingdom is an upside down kingdom. That the values that this world holds and that the kingdoms of this world hold are in complete and utter contrast to the values of Christ's kingdom. And how you can't really do the dual citizenship thing. You can't be a citizen of this world and cling to the values of this world and also be a citizen of God's kingdom because the value systems are completely opposite from each other. And you can't be all about me and all about God and others. You can't be greedy and also be generous. And the list goes on and on and on. We looked at uh, seven examples of values of God's kingdom versus values of the world's kingdom. And now I just want to talk to you today about, just a little bit more specifically, what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What's required of us to be a citizen of God's kingdom? Now we come to a passage of scripture today that we just read that's another one of those head scratchers where you know sometimes you look at stuff in the Bible and you say, these guys are idiots. I mean, they just don't get it. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons that I uh, really you know, think that the, if the Bible were propaganda, as some people say it is, there's, they were really bad at writing propaganda, okay? if that's what it was. Because you know, if you were trying to write this rose-colored history of how Christianity came into power and uh, you know, these apostles became great leaders of the church and you know, look at Peter, oh he's great then you wouldn't write things about Peter just being an idiot <laughs> you know, that, just doesn't, that doesn't help your case any really 
And yet time and again we see God's people both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. And then they build a golden calf to worship. You know, it's a, or, you know, just like we read last week with John the Baptist and uh, John Spires and I were talking about this. You know, how, do, how does the guy, you know, he's the cousin of Jesus. His mom was Elizabeth. He had to grow up hearing the stories about uh, you know, Jesus' divine birth, and yet, you know, and he baptized Jesus, heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he sends a message Are you the one we should expect? You know, or, or maybe he was just asking, Are you going to get with the program anytime soon, Jesus? But, but we see these cases where it's head scratching, you know, why don't they get it yet? And, and this story is no different. Jesus sits down at the famous Last Supper with his disciples and he begins to talk to them. And he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We can assume that he had been sharing Passover with them in years past. This was an annual thing that Israel did. But he said, I've been eagerly desiring to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And I think that the disciples, when they heard this statement, is a little bit like, uh, you know, when your mom says, go clean your room and then you can come have ice cream. And you just hear... Ice cream, right? You don't catch the clean your room part. And I think that's kind of what the disciples were doing here. They didn't really catch the the suffering thing. They just heard the kingdom's coming. And I think as Jesus goes on and, and talks to him about the cup, and, you know, this is my blood spilled for you, and this is the bread, my body broken for you, and, and just sharing this communion meal with them, in the backs of their heads, they're doing some quick math here. And they're saying... Well, wait a second. He said, we're not going to have another one of these Passover meals until the kingdom comes. I knew something was going on. I knew it. I mean, he came into Jerusalem this time. I mean, we've come to Jerusalem several times before. He's never ridden in on the colt of a donkey like the prophecy said the king would. He's never had a welcome like this where people were saying, you know, blessed be the king of Israel as he came in. He went up to the temple and he cleared things out there. And I mean, he's just been, he's been on a roll here. And now he's saying that we're not going to have another one of these Passovers until the kingdom comes. That means it's this year. It's about to start. The revolution's going to, enough of this walking around and talking about the kingdom and preaching about the kingdom and, and healing people and talking with riffraff and all that. We're about to get down to business. And as they think that, of course, the natural thing that any of us would do is start getting down to the important questions. All right, if the kingdom is coming, if we're about to be, you know, taking on Rome, then let's get the important stuff cleared out. Like, which of us is going to be the most important? I mean, clearly, clearly, the 12 of us, you know, we're definitely more important than the rest, but. All 12 of us can't be Segundo on the ranch, you know. Uh, and if, if you're not into reading westerns, that's the cowboy that's second in command. And you really should read more westerns. Um, 
But we can't all be second in command to Jesus. You know, there's, there's several of us here. And so which of us, you know, is going to be the most important, obviously, me? And then the next guy says, are you kidding me? No. You know, clearly, Jesus prefers me. You know, he had me lead that one thing. And so forth and so on. It must have gone. And Jesus, again, probably shaking his head, thinking, are you serious? Here we are again. I still don't get it. So he says, let me explain to you something about my kingdom. See, the kings of the Gentiles, just to pause for a second, the Gentiles, uh, just to be clear, are the non-Jews, the Romans and the Greeks especially, um, the Gentiles being all the people around them. You know, the Jewish people were now a part of this grand Roman Empire that included this huge territory all around them. Uh, it involved a lot of Greek culture and a lot of Roman culture and other cultures mixed in. These were the Gentiles and the Jews were the Jews. God's chosen people and everyone else were just pagans. Jesus says the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That word benefactors is actually, I mean, it was, a, it was like a Greek word that kings back then and in the years leading up to Jesus' time in ministry actually sometimes even put in their title. You know, I'm Bob the Great and Magnificent Benefactor, the first, you know. Uh, so, probably not that particular name, but maybe if you translated it to English and then nicknamed it. But, they would say things like this. You know, they would call themselves benefactors. Not so different from politicians today, right? Who say, look at what good I'm going to do for the people. And they're really thinking, you know, how can I get that jet? <laughs> and uh, so, these these so-called benefactors were corrupt kings, people who, uh, well, you know, when, when they heard this, the disciples would have been thinking of, uh, you know, Caesar, the emperor. They would have been thinking of Pontius Pilate, the governor. They would have been thinking of even probably Herod, called the king of the Jews, but not so Jewish, really, and uh, was basically a pawn of Rome. So, you know, group him into that mix, too. All these kings that call themselves benefactors while their people wallow in poverty and oppression and they live it up in luxury and palaces. Call themselves, have the nerve to call themselves doers of good. <laughs> so they call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. See, he doesn't deny that it's a kingdom or that he's a king. He just says it's different. It's different than what you're used to. It's different than the way this world does things. You're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest or the childlike or the least. And the one who rules is like the one who serves. For who is greater? 
The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Luke doesn't record the story of Jesus washing feet. This story kind of communicates the same thing, but you know, it makes me wonder where exactly in all this dialogue did the washing of the feet take place. John says that it, it took place during the meal. As they were sharing this meal, as they were visiting, as they were having fellowship, dialogue, Jesus got up, wrapped a towel around him, grabbed some water, and went around and started doing the servant's job of washing the disciples' feet. I wonder if he did it right after this, just to drive the point home, or maybe he heard them all arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and he just picked up a towel, and he picked up a basin of water, started washing feet, while they're saying, ah, I think I'll be the greatest in the kingdom. And when he got done, he said, Who's greater? The one at the table? Or the one who's serving the people at the table? He says, See, the people in this world would say it's the ones at the table, but I am coming to you as one who serves. And I've just shown you as literally as I possibly can. By washing your filthy feet. Such is the call of the citizen of God's kingdom. We are not called to titles and prestige. We're not called to build wealth at the expense of others. We're not called to sit back and let someone else do all the work. We're called to care. We're called to serve. We're called to love. To love. I mentioned to you that Jesus had just one role, one guideline, one principle, one question, one thing that he said brings it all together. Someone once asked him, you know, it was one of the great, great arguments of their day. Jesus, of all the great commands in the Old Testament and of Moses and all the ones we've added on top of that, and which one is the greatest? And Jesus said, it's not only the greatest, it sums all the others up. And it's love the Lord your God with all you've got and love your neighbor as you love yourself. <laughs> so we might put it in a question form and simply say, What does love require of me? Whatever situation we face, whatever difficulty we face, whatever temptation we face whenever we're looking at something and saying is this against the rules or is this kind of in the gray area 
Or is this okay just to say, what does love require of me? And we're not just talking about some hippie kind of love, all right? Or the world's kind of love, or just a feel-good, warm and fuzzy kind of thing. We're talking about godly, biblical love. Best described, probably as, as well or better than anywhere, by the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Corinthians and what's famously become known as the love chapter, which we did a whole sermon series on back in, well, right after I got here, back in May. It's the kind of love that never gives up. That cares more for others than for self. That doesn't want what it doesn't have. That doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. It's the kind of love that doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep a score card of all the sins of others. That doesn't revel when others grovel. It's the kind of love that takes pleasure in the flowering of the truth. The kind of love that puts up with anything. That trusts God, always, that always looks for the best. That never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And so, when we're in these situations that we find ourselves in so often, we just ask ourselves, what does godly kind of love, what does that kind of love require of me when I'm about to lash out in anger at my spouse or at my child or at my parents or my sibling what does love require of me see what I mean it's simple but it's not easy (laughs) I wonder whether I should go there or do that. What does love require of me? When I'm about to take the easy way out, what does love require of me? When I'm about to make sure I get my way, what does love require of me? When I'm not sure what to do or say, Or when I'm about to bring up someone's past mistakes. Make myself feel a little bit better. What does love require for me? When when I'm about to fish for a compliment. What does love require of me? When I'm about to give up on somebody. When I'm about to get bossy. The list could go on and on. We find ourselves in situations all the time, you know, where even even the ones, even the things where we feel like, well, you know, this this thing, you know, some people might call it a sin or whatever. It might even be kind of illegal, but really, who does it hurt besides me? I'm not hurting anyone else. If you're honest. And you really dig deep into that question, what does love require of me? Love for God, love for others. There's very few of those things that we think only affect us that really only affect us. And if we really loved and cared for others as much as we cared for ourselves, then 
we might choose something different. But see, the world, they're always about, and thus we grew up always about, ourselves. And looking out for, you know, how can I get my life to be a little bit better? How can I, you know, the grass get a little bit greener over here for me? How could I be a little bit happier, you know? It, I need more, more stuff. I need more, you know, I need better stuff to eat. I need better stuff to wear. I need, how can my life get better? How can I be happier? And that's what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdoms of this world. But the citizen of God's kingdom, they're interested in how can I like make life better for them? Boy, I'd like for them to be happier. I'd like for them to have something better to wear, to eat. I'd like for them to have enough. I'd like for them to have a good life. And most of all, I'd like for them to know our King. The citizens of this world aren't me, me, me people. They're about God and others. They're about loving the Lord with all they've got and caring about their neighbor as much as they care about themselves. They're the kind of people who pray with God and try to live out the prayer, God, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're the people that say, what does love require of me? And like we've said a couple of times now, this, it's, a, it's a simple statement, but let's not ever think that it's easy. If anything, in some ways I think it's harder, but not in the same kind of way. Not in the same kind of burdensome guilt, heap guilt on you all the time until you give up kind of way that the other way is, the way that Jesus came to say, hey guys, I mean, you know, the New Testament talks about freedom all the time, that's because, especially the Jewish people, who were trying to live up to these hundreds and hundreds of rules that they never felt good enough to live up to, suddenly could breathe a deep breath, and not have to try and make sure they were dotting all their I's and T's, and how many steps did I walk on the Sabbath day, and all that stuff. And to get down to asking the questions of what does love require of me. But Jesus makes it clear that it's... I mean, you just read some of his teachings. He says things like, you know, you've heard it said this. Well, I'm going to take it up a notch, you know. I say this. If you're, if you're really going to be asking what does love require of me, you're going to walk that extra mile. You're going to give them your cloak too when they ask for just a little bit of something. You're going to go the extra mile. It's not, just look at what it took from Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate example of asking, what does love require of me? And look what all it required of Jesus. And he taught his disciples to live by this principle. And look what it required of them. Those 12 guys who were in that room arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to get served the most. Who's going to have the best title. Who's going to have the most power. And in the end, 
from what history we have, the vast majority, majority of them ended up giving everything. They ended up discovering that what love required of them was their everything. So is it easy? No. And again, you know, it, it's easy. You can say, well, you know, as a church, we're about what does love require of us? And we're about love. And we're, just, we're a feel-good, happy kind of church. Come on over here and we, we talk about love. And we just love each other. And uh, Oh, it's warm, fuzzy feelings around here. But again, wrong kind of love. <laughs> this question is not for sissies, alright? And the, the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom of God are far from wimps. They're people who boldly do whatever love requires of them. They've been boldly turning this world upside down for the better part of 2,000 years. You can read incredible story after incredible story of Christians. Oh, I know that there's stories out there of people who've done stupid things, evil things even, in the name of Christianity. And our media loves to pull those out. But for every story that they report, there are so many more stories of Christians who are changing their world. And they're asking this question, what does love require of me? And they're showing a brand of love that the world never knew before Jesus showed up. And that is what we get to be a part of as a church and as Christians. We get to be part of turning our world upside down because we're citizens of an upside down kingdom and that's what our king does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your gospel, your good news, the hope that we find in you the forgiveness that we find in you, the freedom that we find in you. The freedom to stop trying to cross all our T's and dot all our I's and to get busy doing the things of the kingdom. The things that you came to do and have entrusted now to us. And I pray, Lord, that you change our hearts and minds on this. I pray for the ones of us who are caught up in the constant cycle of always feeling guilty, never doing enough, never being good enough. God, help them to see themselves through your eyes and to break free of that cycle of always trying to do enough and instead start asking the question, what does love require of me? How can I show Christ's love to someone? And God, for those who've maybe kept you away at arm's length because of the rules, either rules that they think are too strict or rules that they think, well, I've broken too many of them already. I could never measure up. Oh God, how many times we hear that one. And that they would realize 
that you're not a God who wants to be sitting there with a scorecard. You're a God who wants to change and transform lives by your power, by the power of your spirit. And you're, you specialize in taking mess-ups like us here and turning them into ambassadors for your kingdom. People whose lives are changed and therefore bear witness to what you do, O oh God, and to your might and your strength. And so we pray, God, that you draw us to yourself. Teach us what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.